Welcome to the Emergency Medicine Conversations podcast. I'm Dr Louise Tuckwell, a senior CMO working in two southern regional hospitals. The aim of this podcast is to review emergency topics with a rural and regional perspective. The opinions expressed of a general education encourage everyone to check their local guidelines and those of the New South Wales Emergency Care Institute. I have with me today Professor Ken Butcher, Medical Director of the New South Wales Telestroke Service. Thanks so much for joining me today, Professor Butcher. Would you mind telling us a bit about yourself and your current roles? Yeah, I'm a neurologist. I'm Canadian uh, originally, and I've spent my entire career, both clinical and research, uh, dedicated to stroke, stroke treatment and stroke prevention. My connection to Australia goes back to 2001. I originally came here to do my postdoctoral fellowship with Professor Stephen Davis at, at Royal Melbourne. And then uh, actually spent five years here in Sydney, but, or correction, in Australia, Melbourne and Sydney. And then eventually went back to Canada where I spent the bulk of my career, but maintained strong connections to the Australian stroke community, both clinical and academic. And eventually that led me back here to my current post at the University of New South Wales, where I'm Professor of Neurology, Director of Clinical Neuroscience at the Prince of Wales Clinical School. And then through my role at Prince of Wales Hospital, where I'm a stroke neurologist, I, and the larger New South Wales stroke community, I eventually became the director or medical director of the New South Wales Telestroke Service. Oh, that's fantastic. And why and how have we come to have a telestroke service in New South Wales? Telestroke services really level the playing field for people in rural and regional areas and remote areas. Stroke is one of those diseases that unfortunately your outcome has been determined by your postcode for the, the bulk of the time that we've been able to treat it. Stroke's really been treatable. Acute stroke has been treatable since about 1995, but you could almost measure your probability of a good treatment uh, being delivered, never mind uh, a good outcome, by the distance you were from a teaching hospital or a research center. In more recent years, that's been extended out to metropolitan hospitals. But still, if you were in regional, rural, and remote areas, you were just not going to access the specialty services and specialty imaging and other investigations that were required to deliver that stroke treatment in time. And Telestroke is really just leveraging existing technology uh, and bringing those specialist services and investigations in a timely fashion to people who are out in these rural and regional areas. And New South Wales, as you know, is a, is a very large area. Lots of people with low population density. And really, there's only one way to do this. You are never going to have enough subspecialist stroke neurologists or stroke specialists in all of the little communities where stroke occurs. But of course, stroke can occur and does occur everywhere. Oh, wow. Just what a great initiative for you know, caring for our rural communities. So if we have a look at the telestroke pathway, there's several stages. I mean, the initial one is pre-hospital Maybe just let us know a little bit about what the paramedics out there might be doing to try and identify a patient that might be eligible for, for telestroke. Sure. So stroke recognition really starts in the community and somebody has to alert the ambulance. The vast majority of stroke patients do arrive at hospital via ambulance. So you're absolutely right. Paramedics are um, and ambulance officers are usually the first medical personnel to try to assess whether or not somebody's had a stroke. They'll generally start with the most basic stroke protocol, which is of course the FAST protocol, right? So face weakness, unilateral face weakness, uh, weakness of an arm, again, unilateral, difficulty with speech, and then of course time, uh, establish the time they were last known well, and then get moving. 
we say in the fast campaign time, it's time to call the ambulance. Now, of course, the ambulance is already there. Now, in many jurisdictions, there are additional pre-hospital protocols aimed at identifying what type of stroke the patient might have in terms of severity and whether or not a large vessel is involved or not. There are different scales that have been utilized around the world. There's the LA pre-hospital stroke scale, there's or LAPS, there's a Cincinnati uh, pre-hospital stroke scale score. In Australia, we tended to use something called the Hunter 8, which is basically a home-down version of the standard neurologic assessment tool that we use in the stroke world, which is the National Institutes of Health Stroke Scale Score, or sometimes referred to as the NIS. And just to take eight critical components of that that can be assessed very, very quickly uh, in the field. That's not universal. It's not Ambulance New South Wales policy, but many ambulance officers are using that to further characterize a stroke patient and or a potential stroke patient and provide that information to the medical officers in the emergency department they're having to. Oh, that's very helpful to know, particularly I think for some of our locums working in different sites who there might be different, as I said, pre-hospital approaches. So now when we receive a pre-notification or in our area, it's a back call from the paramedics regarding the impending arrival of a code stroke patient, what should we do to prepare for their arrival? In the emergency department? In the emergency um, department. Yeah, yeah, that's a great question. There's several things you can do. I mean, the most important thing to do is ensure that the CT scanner is ready. I always tell people without the CT scanner, we are 18th century physicians. There's no way to know what is going on in a patient's head, as in through their skull, without neuroimaging. And a CT scan is the standard of care. Fortunately, we have lots of them in New South Wales. They are distributed liberally throughout the emergency departments. But first thing to do is to ensure that it's ready. So that means if you do have a patient on there, you need to let the radiographer know that a stroke patient is coming so that they can clear the table. And and if they're about to scan somebody, perhaps with a long examination time, they might delay putting that patient on the table reserving the space for the stroke patient. Even prior to that, if it's after hours in many small communities, that actually might mean calling in the radiographer from home. So many of these smaller communities where we operate telestroke, the telestroke referring sites don't have in-hospital coverage 24 hours a day. Um, The radiographer might need 20 minutes to get into hospital and set up. So you can do that when you're expecting a career stroke patient because imaging is always going to be part of the examination in that setting. Of course, you can let all the nurses know to prep. Everybody should have their stroke box ready with their checklists in it. Everybody's ready to put in any additional IVs if that hasn't already been done by the ambulance officers, of course. And, of course, have the acute assessment bay ready. Okay. Oh, very useful. So that sort of all ties into that time is brain sort of concept with stroke then. Yes, absolutely. And we do need to do a brief assessment prior to sending the patient to the scanner. What should this involve? Yeah, so stroke's a medical emergency. So like every patient showing up in the emergency department with a medical emergency, it starts with ABCs. Now, fortunately, the vast majority of uh, stroke patients or query stroke patients will have a stable airway. They'll be protecting their airway and they'll be ventilating normal. So that generally means putting some oxygen on the patient, which is essentially done for comfort, not, not really a whole lot else. That's your way of breathing. And then circulation, get a blood pressure, get a pulse and get a rhythm, right? Uh, we like to know if the patient's in atrial fibrillation or not. That increases our index of suspicion that we've had an embolic event. Uh, we like to know, obviously, if there are rate control issues that we need to deal with. And most patients with an acute stroke will actually be hypertensive and usually severely hypertensive in the 170 to 200 systolic range. Uh, We're not going to treat that, but again, it lets us know that we're probably dealing with an acute stroke patient when we see all those things line up. And then we usually do a very uh, 
rapid neurologic assessment. Now at telestroke sites, what we ask people to do, we've got a, a screening tool that we ask them to run through. This is an online tool. We call it the uh, Acute Stroke Assessment Protocol or ASAP. So this is an icon that's on every desktop in the emergency department. Any medical officer or nurse for that matter can open up uh, that ASAP tool and it'll ask three things. It'll ask, when was this patient last known well? It'll ask for a one-line description of the deficits. Mm-hmm. And then it'll ask three questions aimed at determining what their pre-morbid level of functioning was. So if they've come from a nursing home and they already require two people to assist them with all their activities of daily living, that is certainly going to change our approach to treatment. We want to know that patients are relatively independent, at least with respect to ADLs, and hopefully okay, we're going to consider aggressive and uh, the therapies for stroke. And then the last thing we ask them is to do the NI stroke scale score. Now, it's done in a, in a deconstructed fashion. So the computer is actually, the, the algorithm is taking them through it. They may not actually know they're doing it. Ideally, we'd like people to be trained in it, but even if they're not, the, the ASAP protocol will tell them what to do and how to score it. And it'll give a score at the okay. end. Tell us how, what the degree of neurologic impairment is in that patient. And at that point, we actually ask them to call us if the protocol says, yes, this is a candidate for hyperacute therapies, right? And it'll, it'll determine that. There's some logic to the uh, protocol, but it'll t- determine that based on when the patient was last known well. Generally, we can't help people that have had symptoms for four days. So we use strict assessment to people that have had symptoms for less than 24 hours. They have to have significant neurologic disability, i.e. something that's debilitating, right? So they have to be have weakness on one side or uh, be blind on one side or have an in a, um, impaired ability to communicate uh, and understand. Those are all debilitating and life-changing symptoms that we will want to intervene on. And then, of course, the, the last thing is what I alluded to earlier, the, the level of premorbid function. You, you can't make people better than they were before the stroke. Okay, very good. So, I mean, currently, you know, we've got a laminated copy of the NIHSS score in the department just to, you know, briefly run through and score people with. But as yep. part of this telestroke thing, we, what we'll use the computer and actually fill it out on, on the um, pathway. Is that correct? It's actually faster. Yeah. I mean, it's okay if you have those laminated cards with you, but the it's just point and click, right? So you're just filling in boxes. You don't actually have to do anything. It'll calculate the score for you. So you just... Yeah score what you see. You can't remember. It's basically got that same information there that's on your card. One thing that is a little different is we kind of grouped it the way you would approach the stroke patient. So um, the NIH stroke skills is is organized, you know, it was developed by neurologists, right? So it's it's kind of the order of operations, I guess, is a little unusual. Whereas on the ASAP tool, it's basically grouped everything together. Well, what was your as you approach the patient, were they talking? Were they slurring? That's that's the first thing. Were they awake and alert? Um, right. did they your commands, did they answer your questions? We get all that out of the way right up front because that's generally something you would assess really as part of your history almost, right? As you're approaching the patient. Yeah. Um, then we go into the face. We group the eye signs together. So the the hemianopsia or quadratinopsia along with the extraocular movements, right? The gaze left and right. That's grouped together because most people would assess those together. And then same with the, the motor and the coordination, right? That the finger, nose, heel, shin, just group all of that together. So we tried to make it a little bit more um, approachable. Oh, that's great. It sounds like it would flow a little bit better because that's one thing I've found with the NIHS score at times. It, it's just a little bit different to my normal examination process. Oh, that's great. And then I suppose in terms of stroke mimics, well, the paramedics usually have done a blood sugar and we do one when they come in. We ask about anticoagulation. Are there any other stroke mimics we should be aware of when we do our brief assessment? Yeah. Well, you you touched on a really important one, of course. Yeah, hypoglycemia. And you're right. We do like, uh, if they haven't done it, we, we like that on the gas uh, when they hit the door. The uh, most common stroke mimics, number one is probably migraine. So specifically migraine aura, which can occur with or without a headache. Most people that tend to think of migraine as a headache, but in fact, it is a, a neurological condition and they're 
is a depolarization of your of your brain cells and symptoms can be indistinguishable from stroke and most of the time you if somebody has aura symptoms that look like stroke even if that's what you're thinking you're going to proceed through the full investigations it's a diagnosis of exclusion other common stroke mimics a seizure can mimic a stroke about one percent of stroke patients will have a seizure at onset but uh, generally if you see a seizure it's somebody who's had a seizure for some other reason and then they've got a post-ictal stroke-like symptom the the classic being the todd's paresis right so any metabolic condition and you mentioned one the most common one which is hypoglycemic encephalopathy but hepatic encephalopathy can mimic it so can remic encephalopathy these are fairly uncommon uh, but they they can occur other stroke mimics of course there is the factitious disorder the patient with non-neurological weakness and if you think about it if you are having a somatization condition you know, what are you going to come in with you're going to come in with chest pain gastric pain or neurologic deficits right those are the top three things so we're definitely up there again a diagnosis of exclusion not one that you would uh, would make immediately those would be the big mimics uh, there are other mimics that will determine after we've scanned so there are patients with other neurological conditions so for instance uh, uh, an infection like an abscess a well an, an encephalitis of course can also mimic a stroke but again you wouldn't see anything on the image but you do something after to assess for that if the patient's febrile etc a neoplasm or any space occupying lesion can mimic a stroke in the elderly patients we'll often see patients with a subdural hematoma that's presenting like as a stroke because you've got focal deficits related to the subdural hematoma, which technically is not a stroke. Okay. Oh, no, that's very, very helpful. Now, if we have patients, you know, who we think do actually have a stroke, I find ones who clearly have symptoms suggestive of a large vessel occlusion a little bit easier to make decisions about their management. How do patients with symptoms of, say, a subcortical stroke or resolving symptoms suggestive of a possible TIA sort of fit into this service? Yeah. You know, I I tell people it's fine to kind of guess where you think you're going. But again, you are that 18th century physician until you've got those images. All I've done my entire career is stroke. And I just keep a very open mind until I've done the full imaging data set, which includes brain imaging, the non-contrast CT scan, vessel imaging, the CT angiogram, and fusion imaging. Because the overlap between those symptoms is so incredible. Like a lot of people think they they always like to guess hemorrhage. You know, if somebody's on an anticoagulant, you know, and maybe their blood pressure's up and they seem a little drowsy, they like to guess hemorrhage. And sometimes they're right. But statistically, most often it's actually an ischemic stroke, right? Okay. Just because they're on an anticoagulant for something that's very high risk for ischemic stroke, which is generally atrial fibrillation. And, you know, sometimes they're right, but, but sometimes they're not. So I tell people, don't let what you think is happening dictate the tempo of your investigations. Don't take your foot off the accelerator. Keep, keep everything going until we know exactly what we're dealing with. When it comes to subcortical versus uh, large vessel occlusion, again, we, you know, neurologists have tend to have a little bit of diagnostic, I guess, arrogance about this. I think in the past, one study I did a number of years ago with one of my first fellows was to ask neurologists to examine a patient and tell us what they thought the patient had a subcortical or cortical stroke. And then we did an MRI in all of those patients to definitively identify. That's the gold standard, isn't it? Mm. Um, And what we found is neurologists are pretty good at picking a cortical stroke. If you've got a cortical sign, like anaphasia, dysphasia, neglect, something like that. But when it came to subcortical strokes, they were no better than a coin flip. And that's trained neurologists. You know, the traditional teaching is a subcortical stroke is, is its weakness that affects the arm, the leg, and the face equally. Mm-hmm. But not all our patients read the same books as us. Mm. Uh, and I 
just tell people, keep an open mind. Sometimes patients with large vessel occlusions have symptoms that are, you know, they have collateral circulation and their symptoms appear to be improving. They can have mild symptoms. Doesn't mean they're going to stay that way. So I have put less emphasis on trying to localize and trying to figure out what's going on. The, the, the further I've gone down in my career, imaging really, the, most of us would say we'll take a broken down CT scanner any day over uh, the best neurologist. I mean, I guess not too broken down. As long as take an old CT scanner, as long as it'll give you those images, I would trust that over a neurologist's opinion any day. Wow, that's so useful because I find I've been trying to sort of be clear in my mind about what's more likely cortical, subcortical, posterior, and trying to you know, get all these patterns together and help in decision making. But I think you're not wanting to shortchange people. You're right, just you know, get the scan. So that's very, very helpful. So now you did allude to this before, but at what point in this process do we contact the telestroke service? Right. So in at telestroke centers, we ask you to call us before. Before you uh, go to CT scan, um, okay. after you've done the ASAP tool, because that's our final level of screening. Because we might, after speaking to you, sort of say, you know, this sounds more like X. It does sound more like a mimic. Or because of this, for instance, you've told me now the patient's on an anticoagulant already. The symptoms are very, very mild. I'm not going to thrombolyze them. We can, we can slow down the tempo. It doesn't mean they don't get investigated. It doesn't mean they don't have a stroke. It just means we might change the direction uh, of investigation and we might not even proceed to a full uh, telestroke consult at that point. Most of the time we do okay. because you've gone through the ASAP screening toolbook. The other reason to call us, of course, is even more important than all of that is we are then ready. It's the middle of the night. We're up and out of bed, computers on, but even if it's during the day, we'll get to a computer. We're always dedicated to stroke, but you might be a couple of minutes away from your computer set up. And what we do is we meet you virtually at the CT scanner. So we're there ideally as the images are being acquired because sometimes we'll change. For instance, if we see a hemorrhage, We'll talk to the radiographer and say, well, let's not do the perfusion scan, but let's do an intracranial CT angiogram because we want to look for any vascular, intracranial vascular lesions like aneurysms or ABMs. Mm -hmm. uh, we're not so interested in the neck vessels at that point. So it's helpful if we are there. Uh, it also means we're making decisions with the treating physician, the primary care physician in the emergency department at the time. So for instance, there are times uh, where we're on telestroke, we're talking to the team there in the emergency department as the scans are being acquired. We already know they've got a, a high NA stroke scale score. The CT scan comes through. There's no hemorrhage on it. We say to the, to the treating team, look, why don't you get the TPA ready? Open it up, get the box ready. If there's family there, let Let's let them know this is where we're headed. That way we come out of the CT scanner and we're ready to roll. We're not wasting any time. Oh, that's fantastic. So that's really answered my next question about the, the scan. So it you know, really depends on what the first non-contrast CT shows partially, doesn't it, then as to the CTA or the perfusion scan. So, And we should be in the scanner with the patient doing this all virtually with, with the team. So um, Ideally. We do, we are blessed in, uh, I mean, well, everywhere in the world, but in New South Wales, we do have excellent radiographers who can make a call uh, and know what they're looking at and will often, uh, will let us know. But ideally we'd like, yes, some representative of the medical and or nursing team with the patient, yeah. Okay, fantastic. current time frame for thrombolysis is that sort of four or four and a half hours at the moment that's a really good question and it actually has been raised at some of our sites so the the label the tg label for thrombolysis with alteplase which is the only approved lytic agent right now in australia and that mm -hmm. is the one so alteplase or tpa mm -hmm. is zero to 4.5 hours from time last known well Okay. Now, it's an evolving area because if you go on to the stroke, uh, 
Stroke Foundation of Australia website and you look at the living guidelines, which are, are very dynamic, very mm-hmm. up-to-date, some the latest evidence, they'll actually tell you that lysis can be administered in selected patients with the correct imaging signatures, which I'll talk about in a minute, mm-hmm. uh, up to nine hours after last known well, or uh, nine hours from the time, the midpoint of sleep if the patient went, went to bed well. So that hasn't changed the label, mm. but that's all based on, on recent evidence, some of which is Australian, which shows that if you've got a CT perfusion pattern suggestive of an ischemic penumbra, you can actually benefit from therapy. We initially, as we started the service, we were quite conservative and we said we will only be treating with lytic agents within four and a half hours. This these studies have come out and the Stroke Foundation of Australia guidelines have actually changed as the services has been implemented. And we have begun to treat patients who have either woken up from sleep uh, or were unknown to be, or last known well more than four and a half hours after onset, if they have what we call a numbral pattern or a, a good imaging signature on the perfusion imaging. So what that tells us is they've got an area of the brain that's not getting enough blood flow to function normally. So it's giving you the stroke symptoms, but the blood flow is not so low that the brain is actually infarcted or or died. So it's potentially retrievable, which is really why any of these therapies work. And it was those penumbral signatures that allowed us to extend the initially the treatment for large vessel occlusion with endovascular clot retrieval out to 24 hours. The studies with lytic agents are currently underway. There's one in Australia called Eternal, which we're part of on the telestroke service. And then there's another one being done um, in North America called Timeless. Those are the type of trials you need to change the label. They always lag behind, but there are other more recent trials showing some benefit in those selected patients, as I said, not up to 24 hours, but up to nine hours from last known well, or in wake up stroke patients. The reason that we're doing that is we found that in the telestroke setting, lysis is even more important than it is in a metropolitan stroke center. So my last patient that I treated was last week, lady in Daniloquin. Daniloquin is uh, on the border. I don't know if you know where Daniloquin is, but you're essentially a few steps away from Victoria. Mm-hmm. So your closest endovascular clot retrieval center is, is Royal Melbourne. And, it, you know, if we hadn't given her license there, she would have waited in excess of eight hours before any treatment could be delivered. And in most people's, in most cases, your brain can't survive that long. With, a, with an acute, with a clot. There are some people that can hang on, but most people aren't. So it's really important that we deliver, if we can open that artery, to do whatever we can to open that artery it, it, wherever the patient is. And that's really one of the primary benefits of, of telestroke. You have the luxury of time. You could make the argument, if you're sitting here at Prince of Wales, yes, I could give you a TPA, but if the interventionalist is right next to me, and they're all set to take the patient into the endovascular suite, the angio suite. Well, really, does it make a lot of difference if I give them this drug before or not? But that is not the case in, in telestroke centers. When you're in these rural centers, you are always hours away from actually getting that clot pulled out. And there, there's time for the lytic to work there uh, and get that uh, artery open. So in the case of the patient I just described to you, by the time she arrived in, in Melbourne, her symptoms have completely resolved and didn't, she didn't require uh, a procedure. Oh, that's just great. And that sort of actually answers some of my other questions. So basically in rural areas, even if they're going for clot retrieval, it's beneficial if they're eligible to give them the thrombolysis. And in terms of if a patient to be eligible, is that a combination of their NIHSS score and the perfusion scanning and their, you know, pre-morbid state? Do you put all those things together to make that call? Every time. 
every time, right? And uh, look, there there are some hard and fast rules, and then there are other ones that are, uh, you know, it's like a stall. Have all the things you just mentioned, right? Um, and it's always easy to think about the extremes, right? Uh, if you show up early, you are a relatively young, fully independent person in the community, and you've got significant deficits. You can't talk. You can't walk. It's a no-brainer, right? I'm going to give you license. Now, you come from a nursing home and you are already bed-bound, you know, and you're 95 years old and your deficits are maybe on the milder side. That's the other extreme, right? You've got everything pointing against treat. And then there's everybody in the middle, which is really where, you know, that's, those are the, the tough decisions. That's why we do what we do. Most of the time, you know, we will, because of where we are in the telestroke setting, if somebody has a debilitating deficit, we will treat. We look for a reason to treat. We don't look for reasons not to treat. Um, we find with our modern imaging selection paradigms and being careful as we are, our hemorrhagic complication rates are actually lower than what they are in the trial. So our hemorrhagic complication rate right now, uh, symptomatic hemorrhagic transformation of ischemic heart infarct in uh, thrombolysis patients in the telescope setting right now is sitting at 1.6%. It's actually lower the highest bleed rate that we're seeing is in the endovascular collaborative treatment patients where it's over 4%. And that's simply just a reflection of the fact that you're opening up. The reason you bleed generally is you open up clot and let blood go into dead brain and it leaks out. So in those patients with a large vessel occlusion, they tend to have bigger strokes. You open up that big clot, you're, you're more likely to bleed. But if, when you look at the lysis bleed rates, you know we're half what we were uh, in the most recent thrombolysis trials, right? We're sitting around 5%. We generally quote a 5% rate, but it's actually, but it's better to overquote. Overquote. Oh, yeah. oh, that's great. It's obviously, you know, really good patient selection there as well. And so if we're talking to the family or the patient, you know, depending on their state, we just want to give them before thrombolysis, say, look, you know, overall the risk is this and the risk of, you know, all the, the op, you know, the potential gain. You mentioned a few stats there, but could you just briefly summarise how you'd explain that to a patient? or yeah. So when, I mean, most patients, if they require thrombolysis, there are exceptions, but most patients probably aren't consentable uh, mm. because they've got focal neurologic deficits. And even a patient who looks to you like they are fully uh, oriented, et cetera, Often, if you were to do, and we have done this, if you were to do a cognitive assessment, you'd find that they're impaired. I mean, and it's pretty logical, right? Your brain works as a, as a, a functioning unit. It's very complicated. And even if you have decreased blood flow in an area that you might think is not related to cognition, it mm. does overall performance. Uh, but so it's generally a matter of explaining to patients what you're going to do. It's an emergency approved therapy in Australia. So you don't actually need consent to deliver that therapy. Now, if someone's there, the family's there, absolutely you're beholden to tell them what you're doing, explain to them the risks and the benefits. But what I do is I give a very, and we do this on the telestroke service, is we give a very clear recommendation I think it's somewhat unfair to put patients in that situation where time is of the essence and to ask them to make these critical decisions. So the way I usually phrase it is, you know, you can see what your husband, wife, father, daughter, um, et cetera, uh, is like now this is caused by a blood clot that's blocking an artery to the brain. And we can see on the imaging that there's an area of brain that's at risk uh, for dying if we don't get that blood clot out. The good news is you're here in good time. We have a medication that can break down that blood clot and at about one in three times, that'll actually get the blood flow going and stop the stroke from becoming uh, the full stroke that it would be if we just let, let them as it is. There is always a risk when you give drugs like this I tell them the risk, of course, when you get a blood clot buster is bleeding and bleeding into the brain. 
which we see it about 500 times. But my recommendation in this setting is that we go ahead and accept that risk. And that's how I put it. And then, then I ask if they have any objections to that. Um, and of course, you know, when it's put in those, in that context, people generally might have another question or two, but generally you proceed. Um, and, and that's really what you want to do. Um, if you're going to deliver therapy in a timely fashion, you don't really want to be on the phone, et cetera. That's for clear cut thrombolysis cases. There are cases where I will stop and I'll get consent. There are patients that have mild symptoms you were alluding to, like there, you know, I see a very small area of the brain that's going to be, that there's going to be a stroke. The deficits aren't very mild. And I'll, and I'll actually say, you know, I, I'd like your input on this, you know, because there is some risk. And let's make this decision together. The good news is those minor strokes actually also very, very safe to treat. So most of the time, people actually go say, yeah, let's go for it. And in my experience, and the literature supports this, most of the regret that people have had around thrombolysis has been when they didn't treat. Most people, if they had the do-over again, sort of say, oh, I should have treated that patient. It's not the other way around. It's not, I wish I hadn't done that, you know, if, if you're selecting the right patients. Oh, look, I think that just will be so helpful for us in the rural settings, just taking that emergency approach, there's a clot, you know, and really guiding patients to what has, you know, been shown to be a very effective treatment. So that's that's really great. Now, in terms of bleeding from the thrombolysis, so you mentioned obviously the risk is you can bleed into the stroke. Is there much of a risk of bleeding from other sites like the GI tract or that you find well, or so much? Yeah, sure. You know what the bleeding rate is because you also deliver thrombolysis with, uh, well, previously Alteplase, you're probably using Metalase now, Metalase mm. uh, for STEMIs, right? And the, the bleed rate there is no different. And that's clearly part of the screening process and the questions are identical to what you would use for the STEMI one right? Everything in stroke neurology is just cardiology 20 years later, right? We just follow the cardiologist. And, um, you know, the risks are of systemic bleeding are far less than 1%. But obviously, you can identify those patients at risk. Well, oh, you just, you've got an active ulcer. Okay, well, was that ulcer treated recently? Was it clipped? Was, you know, did, did, did you have a scope recently? Was there active bleeding? Oh, you've got active diverticular disease. That all comes into it. Most of the time in those settings, I mean, you know, again, it's risk benefit, right? So mild symptoms, you've got elevated GI bleed risk. That generally is going to translate into, we don't need to do this, right? We're not, we're just going to uh, unfortunately accept the, the risk here. Uh, or, large vessel occlusion, really high risk of bleeding because you've had recent active bleeding. We're just going to get you out of there and get to the nearest endovascular quad retrieval center. So definitely plays into it. And it, it's history is everything, right? I don't know if I've seen spontaneous systemic bleeding in a patient that we didn't know had a pre-existing condition, but of course it it can happen. Uh, as you know, people have undiagnosed uh, GI lesions that are prone to bleeding, right? Clinics, mm. like anticoagulants, they, they, they interact with other pathology, right? You're not going to have bleeding into a healthy GI tract. Uh, you're going to bleed because you've got something else going on. There. Absolutely. So, and as you say, we're familiar from our um, stroke our um, STEMI thrombolysis. So that's really good to know as well. So now there is a risk of um, angioedema from mm. thrombolytic agents. Like we normally give adrenaline, fluids, steroids, and, and antihistamines. Is there anything yeah. different we should be doing for these patients if that happens? No, no, it, it's interesting. It's a, I've seen it a couple of times, always in patients on ACE inhibitors. Okay. It's actually, it's not a lot of people think it's an allergic reaction or an anaphylactic reaction. It's not. It's sort of an anaphylactoid reaction. Essentially, you get you have too much bradykinin uh, circulating around, and it's from inhibition of that bradykinin um, metabolic pathway, which is why there's that interaction with ACE inhibitors. 
which give you elevated bradycardine levels too. That, that's what stimulates the cough, mm. right? When patients on ACE inhibitors. Um, and look, I do all those things too. They're all empiric. Uh, you know, you're just basically trying to vasoconstrict and get the patient through it. I mean, first thing, stop the lysis uh, because it, it always happens during the infusion. I've never seen it after. It's usually about halfway through the infusion. So you stop it immediately. In most patients, that's enough. Right. In most patients, it's fairly mild. I, you know, touch would have never had to get to the point where a patient was in, was intubated, but I've always done just what you did. Give some IV antihistamines. If you have some IV decks, great. Go ahead and give that. And I, I like to keep the, the epinephrine handy, you know, sort of keep your powder dry if you're getting to that, but you in the emergency department know how to handle airway situations better than I do. And if you wanted to give all of that, you can go right ahead. Okay, fair enough. So um, now in terms of uh, large vessel occlusion and patients who are eligible for clot retrieval, you did mention there's up to 24 hours, is it now, that patients could be eligible for that? Yeah, I mean, again, it, it all really comes back to what we're finding in the stroke world is what's much more important than the, the, the clock. The, the actual clock is your tissue clock, which we measure with imaging, right? So do you have decreased blood flow in an area of the brain that's at risk for dying, but for infarction that we can salvage? Um, that's the most important thing. And that's much more important than when your, when your symptoms started. Because there are patients, we're all different. There are patients that have an occluded artery and have persisting symptoms for, I've seen patients up to 24 hours, sometimes even longer, that have managed through the collateral flow pathways, which is what we're assessing those perfusion images, mm. um, managed to keep that brain alive. So of course, they still benefit, right? When you open an artery. And... And there are other patients, unfortunately, that have virtually no penumbra almost instantly. There are patients that just don't have the collateral flow pathways or the ability to recruit those flow pathways. They have their stroke symptom. They're in the emergency department. I've seen patients that assessed in the emergency department within 60 minutes of onset, and you can tell that they're not going to do well. You can know right away. And, and that's really the paradigm shift, right, in imaging Time is still very, very important. We're not saying, take your time, it doesn't matter. We'll see what we see when we get to the imaging. Time is absolutely still important because everybody's losing neurons as they go along. Time is brain, time just like time's muscle. Again, something we stole from the cardiologist. But we, that's why we're able to get better results now than we were when we started thrombolysing in the mid-90s because we're picking the right patients. That's why it's safer. We've shown that we can help patients with large vessel occlusion up to 24 hours. And the next step really is the, the principles of reperfusion are the same, right? The idea is you've got an occlusion, you've got a blood clot blocking, you've got to get that open. So there's really no reason that opening that artery, if you can't get to endovascular clot retrieval within minutes or say an hour, there's no reason that you shouldn't also benefit from a lytic agent. Lytic agents just don't tend to open arteries as efficiently, especially big clots as endovascular clot retrieval. That's, that's the huge difference there is that endovascular clot retrieval can remove very efficiently and very quickly, very large clots. Oh, great. And in terms of the, you know, risks and benefits with clot retrieval, could you just briefly summarize those statistics for us? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so the, the benefits, again, if you've got the penumbral pattern, right, the number needed to treat to cure is about, you know, about four, well, it's about a 40% absolute treatment uh, benefit, right? Mm -hmm. uh, overall, it's, um, I mean, not everybody uh, walks away from an endovascular clot retrieval without a stroke because mm -hmm. um, it is, is a large stroke, but they get the benefit of the doubt, you know, they get to pull that clot out. It's an incredibly powerful therapy. It's the most powerful therapy we've had, right? We've developed in a keen stroke. Um, so if you, if you, you know, if you do have a large vessel occlusion, 
you don't have an established infarct, we're going to try to get that out. So the benefits are, are very, very clear. The risks are um, maybe a little bit less appreciated, probably because the benefits are so profound that they almost become secondary. Uh, but as I said, there, there is a risk of bleeding into the brain. Hemorrhagic transformation is what we call it with endovascular clot retrieval. And that's really at least as high, if not a little bit higher than it is for thrombolysis, but again, really based on the kind of patients we're treating. Mm. Um, and then of course, there are the usual angiographic complication procedures, right? Which are pretty rare. I mean, again, in New South Wales, we have um, really well, you know, well-trained and experienced interventionalists, but things like groin hematomas do occur perforations of the artery can occur in the brain. So you can have a subarachnoid hemorrhage. Mm. Uh, but these fortunately are, are rare or, or uncommon, perhaps is probably the best way to put it. We do have that type of information on our information sheet for patients, which we give uh, when we're sending patients for these procedures. We probably don't make a big deal about it because, again, it's really not a it's not a, a decision that you really want to contemplate too long. It's a risk you're going to accept. Just the way I put it, the way I think of it is if you have a broken hip, yeah, there's risks of that procedure, but you need that hip fix. Um, mm. And really, a large vessel occlusion should be thought of as a much the, the same. Oh, that's a great way of looking at it. And oh, that's been very helpful. If we have patients who we go through the process and it's thought for, you know, the combination of, you know, scans and presentation and maybe lesser symptoms, they're not going to be eligible for thrombolysis or clot retrieval. Does the telestroke service, you know, give us some advice about ongoing management of these patients as well? Oh, absolutely. And, and you're quite right. I mean, we have a very high um, reperfusion rate. In, on the stroke service. So about 30%, about one in three of our stroke patients are getting throm a thrombolysis and or endovascular clot retrieval because we've really selected the right patients. That's the highest treatment rate you'll see anywhere in the world. Um, but most patients, the most common ischemic stroke presentation is actually the one we haven't talked a lot about. It's the minor result. Uh, symptoms patients, right? Patients who will ultimately end up being diagnosed with a, a TIA or a minor stroke. They're really a continuum. You should think of them as, as differences. And absolutely, we'll give recommendations. It's usually antiplatelet therapy. It's often a short course of dual antiplatelet therapy. We usually recommend that the patient have an MRI. We've already been able to, because we do the CT angiogram of the neck, we'll be able to diagnose whether or not they have what we consider to be a symptomatic stenosis of the, of the carotid. So if that's relevant, we might be recommending um, transfer for an endarterectomy. And some of our sites, you can actually have that done um, at the local referring site, some of our larger uh, telestroke referring sites. Then there are also about 10% of our patients ultimately end up having intracranial hemorrhage. Uh, so we'll give you advice there too. Occasionally, the patient will have a subarachnoid hemorrhage or a subdural hemorrhage, and we'll make a clear recommendation on who they should call with respect to neurosurgery, what the diagnosis is, and what needs to be done. Intracerebral hemorrhages are really a, a form of stroke. And again, we'll make clear recommendations there. We have treatment pathways with respect to blood pressure management. So we'll get you to lower the blood pressure down to less than 140 millimeters mercury systolic to try to prevent expansion of that hematoma. If the patient's on an anticoagulant, depending on the anticoagulant, we may or may not give you some reversal strategies. So if they're on warfarin, we'll give you clear reversal strategies using prothrombinex and usually a little bit of fresh frozen plasma because we don't have a four-factor PCC in Australia. If they were on dabigatran, we would ask you to get out the idiricizumab or praxmine uh, immediately. We don't have a good reversal strategy for 10A antagonists. We sometimes empirically will use PCC. Um, I haven't mandated to the telestroke consultants that they use it because it isn't a proven or recommended therapy. And in fact, one of my objectives this year is to 
try to randomize patients to PCC or tranexamic acid, which is another commonly used empiric therapy um, in those patients. But regardless, you will get a treatment plan addressing all of the relevant issues in your patient at, at the end of it. If the patient has a stroke mimic, we'll usually make some you know, empiric suggestions um, about how to manage that patient with a, a view to best way to transfer the patient out of the emergency department uh, and ideally home if possible. Oh, wow. I mean, that's just going to be so very, very helpful for us in our rural um, emergency departments. So before we finish up, do you have any other advice for us when we're looking after patients presenting with you know, stroke-like symptoms? I think we've covered just about everything. I, I can't imagine that <laughs> much left. I, I have to say, I mean, I, I, um, I, you know, I, I mean, from our perspective, it is critical to have somebody who is engaged on the other end. And in in our experience, it's ideal if the emergency department staff own it, if they recognize that our best performing sites recognize that this is a medical emergency that that is theirs to manage rather than handing off to a medical service uh, and deal with us directly and and take ownership uh, and be engaged in that patient until the acute therapy has been delivered um, and the patient can be moved. Oh, wonderful. Well, thank you so much for all the work you've done with with the service and I'm really myself very much looking forward to having it come to our area so that we can improve you know care and outcomes for our rural stroke patients so thank you so much for your time today I really do appreciate it my pleasure thank you good oh thanks so much no worries